0: The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy.
1: In business, we only measure results, not plans or platitudes. And results is what you and I should expect from our government. Over the last two weeks, we've actually seen government get some things right in the aftermath of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. I'm sorry, it's a tough way to learn that once in a while the government can perform. The initial response demonstrates that government at every level was able to apply the lessons that we learned during the Katrina catastrophe. And reforms made at the Department of Homeland Security and the aftermath of Katrina worked to minimize deaths, injuries, and misery. Congress and the President took a break from their culture of confrontation just long enough to quickly pass emergency funding to deal with an unprecedented natural catastrophe, two Category 4-5 hurricanes within a space of 10 days. But what struck me the most while watching the events unfold on television and the moments recalled dramatically during the hand-in-hand special on television Tuesday evening was how Americans came together. In moments of crisis. In Texas and in Florida, $44 million was raised around the United States in just two hours. People saw the need and they didn't hesitate. Nobody needed a congressional proclamation to reach out and help their neighbors and strangers who were in need. People helping people, regardless of language, color, class is what makes America, America. I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. And in the news this week, in the wake of Harvey and Irma, the initial government response gets a B. It was better, but it was far from perfect. Climate change, due to fossil fuels or short-sighted humans, or both, The DACA deal. Is there a deal or is there no deal? And the devil, ladies and gentlemen, is in the details. Equifax's security breach. Making money selling your privacy. 23 active duty military members were injured in training exercises in two days this week on two separate coasts. Where is the outrage? How does this stuff happen? And hashtag banish Bannon, it is clear that Steve Bannon is the enemy of the good. And let's talk for just a minute about the wake of Harvey and Irma. Yes, government at all levels implemented the lessons that we learned in Katrina. Katrina. But it must be said that the Brothers Bush, as governors of Florida and Texas, already knew those lessons, and so some of these state-level emergency responses had been previously tested, even if they were in less severe hurricanes. Because we want to be fair. Okay, Louisiana was a different situation. Governors did issue evacuation orders early enough to be able to carry out those evacuation orders to go and clean up in areas where they thought evacuation was mandatory and and then were able to protect first responders who didn't have to take unnecessary risks trying to save people uh, who had not heeded the orders uh, when the storm was underway. And so I think that's a a big step forward. Governors worked with the Red Cross and others to open shelters in anticipation and not reaction to the storm. So consider the contrast to the desperation we saw on television in the aftermath of Katrina in New Orleans. People were able to bring their pets with them to shelters, and that was a major problem during Katrina and it cost lives. So It's a lesson that we've learned. Shelters were equipped. They knew that people coming in wet, tired, and having been in water contaminated with what we can't even imagine would need clothes, diapers, food, some you know, blankets, cots, all of those things were and water. And all of those things this time were there. They were there in advance. So people may not have been comfortable, but they were safe, they knew they were secure, and they could comfort one another. There are great pictures on television of groups of people thrown together in these shelters, strangers gathering to sing spirituals. But that is in the United States, in the southern states of the United States, where neighbor being neighbor is still more traditional than it is let's say, here in California, where the natives like me uh, still know how you, you know, still have friendly relationships with my neighbors, but there are lots of people around us that we don't know because they don't have that open, um, embracing, high neighbor kind of, of background that that we bring um, kind of naturally. And that. Is true n- nowhere as true as it is in the southern states. But governors called up members of their National Guard units in anticipation of, of the hurricane and not waiting uh, till after it had begun. Um, they put units on standby. In Texas, they eventually activated every single member of the National Guard. And that meant that they could go immediately after the storm into search and rescue, which has proved essential in both states. FEMA pre-positioned supplies and personnel so that they could support those initial relief efforts. Big change from what happened in, in Katrina. And the Coast Guard was there. The Coast Guard was on site. They were ready. They were able to go out even in the aftermath and the waning hours of the back end of the storm, and begin to do the search and rescue that did save lives, especially in Texas. Nature contributed to making all of this successful in Florida by changing direction slightly and missing uh, a direct hit on of Naples and Tampa Bay. If Tampa Bay had experienced a 15-foot surge, I think we'd be telling a different story. But it didn't happen, and I have friends who live in Tampa, and um, they say they'll be drinking the water they had stocked up for a couple of months to come. So uh, we're glad that everything worked out the way that it did. But FEMA also recognized... This time, the very special capabilities the United States military has in the situation, and that is thanks to changes in American law that were made in the aftermath of Katrina, where in Katrina, in order to bring in the military at the beginning of the crisis before um, would have required a declaration that the state was in insurrection. So that they fixed that in, in law and that has allowed the USS Abraham Lincoln to park itself off Key West to be at sail, so that when the storm passed, they could pull into Key West and immediately start doing both search and rescue and producing 100,000 gallons of fresh water every day that doesn't have to be brought by uh, some vehicle to be distributed. In addition to the Abraham Lincoln, we've got the USS New York and the assault ship Iwo Jima in the area. And they are beginning to help, not just in Florida, but in Puerto Rico, and more importantly, in the United States Virgin Islands. And yes, it was. It was in the Virgin Islands that FEMA failed. That's where the worst devastation happened where they were the least able to prepare because they're not particularly uh, outside. They're tourist industry dependent. And these people are all United States citizens. It became a case of out of sight, out of mind. We were so focused on the populous state of Florida that we kind of missed the point for a couple of days after Irma hit the Keys and the mainland, that the U.S. Virgin Islands had had sustained a Category 5 hurricane. So it is going to take a military type of response to first stabilize and then begin to remedy the situation there and to bring back paradise stronger than before. Again, you're seeing citizen there, American citizen helping American citizen while waiting for relief to come. And we'll be back in just about 30 seconds to talk about what are some of the lessons learned and where do we go in the aftermath of Harvey Harvey and Irma.
0: For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to reimagine America on eight sixty a m The answer
1: before the break, we were talking about hey what went right with in the in the aftermath of Harvey and Irma, how much better FEMA's performance was than it was in the last catastrophic hurricane Katrina, but now we got to kind of look forward now. Um, EPA director or administrator uh, Scott Pruitt this week said this was not the right time to talk about words to use words like climate change but you know what um it's not it it, it isn't necessarily true because we know from millions of years billions of you know millions and hundreds and hundreds of millions of years of history that the climate on this planet does change. And we know that as our relationship with the sun is changing, there will be some changes. Now, add to those natural factors. It's not all fossil fuels, folks. A lot of it is you and me. You know, a lot of the reasons that these events are so catastrophic come from decisions that we make. Let's talk for just a minute about what we know and what those next tests for Texas, Florida, and us as a nation. In fact, we Californians need to think about this as well. There were two earthquakes in the San Jose region on Thursday, uh, 2.6, 3.3, not exactly 8.7 as we had in 1987, but it's a reminder that we, too, are, you know, at nature's mercy. So what are the next tests for Texas and Florida? Well, first and foremost is the power grid. 15 million people, the entire state of Florida, was without power at the end of this storm. Now, you're going to lose power. I mean, we had a windstorm here on Monday, and we lost power. We had a heat wave the week before and our transformer blew up. It was noisy and it was hot and it was not fun. But the power grid, the power grid in the United States is an issue because power in situations like Florida where it's hot and humid and it's going to be that way for some time yet Power can be the difference between living and dying in these situations. There are eight people dead in a Florida nursing home. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a crime. When there's a hospital, a couple hundred feet away, with power, and you have elderly people who are probably mostly Medicare double, you know, Medicare Medicaid double eligibles that you don't think you should spend the extra bucks that the hospital might charge you in that emergency to move those patients to somewhere where there would be air conditioning, that's criminal. And I think that's what the state of Florida is going to find. But if 15 million people without power at the end of a storm, which we can predict could happen again next year, If that doesn't move us in the direction of an infrastructure renewal program, then nothing will. We have to learn the lessons of this hurricane, starting with the need for smart, rethought power grids. Power grids are susceptible to weather. They are susceptible to cyber. They are susceptible, God help us, to somebody blasting off an atomic weapon In space. So it's a first and foremost that Congress, the President, the 50 states need to work with the public and private utilities around the country to redevelop, modernize, and harden our electrical grid because electricity is life and death in these situations. But there are other lessons that we can learn from these hurricanes. And it starts with building codes. So if you were watching the pictures, you can ask the question fairly, why did Charleston fare better than Jacksonville? Both were flooded. One had major dislocation of people and the other one had inconvenience. Well, Charleston – builds into their building codes anticipation of what the worst could be. So there are more pilings, more stilts, the water can rise, it may go into your basement, it might go into your substructure, but it doesn't come up into your home. Because the threat in Charleston is, they've had, a number of hurricanes that have hit them, a number of winter floods. Um, a couple hundred years of history says you can anticipate flooding in in um, Charleston. And so they build for it. In Jacksonville, where they should anticipate it because they're right on the ocean and they're in Florida and Florida has hurricanes every year, it's not built in to their building codes. And so you saw apartment buildings, first floor Apartments in apartment buildings that are built right on the Johns River flood. They're gone. They're completely destroyed. I suspect that it would be hard to live in the second or third story of those buildings at this point. And that was because, simply because, they didn't build in the anticipation that they could someday experience five feet of water. In the rebuilding, the city of Jacksonville. The state of Florida, the city of Houston, state of Texas, and the United States, who manages the flood insurance program, need to build in the anticipation that flooding can occur. I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. And let's talk for just a moment about how nature and natural topography play into the aftermath of Harvey and Irma, because we've got issues there that we've decided of natural topography. Lots of people want to live along a lovely river or overlooking a beautiful beach, or have a bigger brick house. But nature has a vote and to allow developers to ignore topography, weather, history, etc with lax building codes invites the disasters we've recently seen in the keys there are mobile homes not modular houses we're not talking about prefab houses but traditional houses on wheels that are lashed to concrete bases in a known hurricane zone the florida keys i mean every time there's a hurricane the florida keys gets whacked It's like Houston. You build great big brick houses right on top of historic wetland. In either case, I ask you, what could possibly go wrong? And, you know, people think government wouldn't let us build this house here if it wasn't safe. That's an assumption which I believe these two hurricanes have now blown up. So it's up to people, to citizens, to demand better planning. We're the taxpayers. Eventually, we are going to pay for a very big part of this, of of the reclamation or recovery from these two um, terrible events. And we're also going to pay an economic price nationally. So local, state, and federal government, have to take the lessons of Harvey and Irma, plus years of Missouri and Mississippi River spring floods, and other parts of the country, and take it all into account. We need to rethink how we do urban planning and development so that we work with nature, and not against it. We've got to develop multi modality transportation. You know gas shortages, gridlock traffic in the midst of an evacuation. What if, what if this hurricane had come 24 hours early? And we, we Californians had better hope that there's high-speed rail service in California before the next big one hits us because we don't have the capacity on our freeways to evacuate an area like the Bay Area. That's also a national security risk if we want to think about North Korea for a moment, which we really don't want to do. But the federal flood insurance program needs to be revamped. You cannot rebuild where you know it is going to flood again. You just have to tell people, I'm sorry. We're not going to rescue you. We're not going to rescue your house either. Okay, you're going to have to move to higher ground. And we got to pass a law to prevent multinational corporations, multi-state corporations from profiting from natural 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 catastrophe. It's not just the little local quick stop that ch- overcharged for water or or gasoline in Texas and Florida. I don't know if you noticed, but I noticed it took about 24 hours after Harvey hit for gas to jump 50 cents in California. Why is that not considered price gouging? It wasn't like there wasn't any, um, any um, gasoline available, okay? And dumping cruise passengers without refunds, without transportation, out of affected zones – That's unconscionable. That's almost as bad as stranding people in the U.S. Virgin Islands who were tourists or stranding them in Miami. And we'll be back in just a couple moments to talk about another storm, DACA.
0: For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. On 860 AM, The Answer.
1: Well, we've had a week, a Twitter storm about DACA. Is there a fix? Is there a deal or no deal? Well, folks, there is a DACA fix. Whether we'll get there remains to be seen because, as always... The devil is in the details. So when on Wednesday night, President Trump had dim sum with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, inevitably, because the Democrats, as you saw in the 2016 election, believe that demography is destiny. The Democrats would almost certainly could have anticipated I wonder if Paul Ryan and the president talked about it during their dinner on Tuesday night. The conversation turned to a DACA fix. Well, after that conversation, you know what came next? Tweets ensued. What is surprising is that anyone was surprised that the topic came up along with the chopsticks Recent polling, polling finds that 88% of those polled support a fix for the DACA problem. But that same polling is deeply split on the path to citizenship or only a path to legal status. And it shouldn't be, nor should there be any surprise that a DACA fix is a unique Small piece of legislation, not an opening to comprehensive immigration reform. Now, only Luis Gutierrez, the, the Democratic hardliner from Chicago, who is himself a dreamer from the 1986 uh, amnesty, uh, is pushing for DACA as an opening to comprehensive immigration reform. It's not going to happen for a whole lot of reasons. And if you want to know about more about those reasons about the 1986 Act and why from 2004 to 2017 comprehensive immigration reform efforts have failed in Congress, you can go to reimagineamerica.org, and there is lots of information um, on the homepage. And if you do a search about why... It is that comprehensive immigration, uh, let's face it, we don't do comprehensive legislation of, of any kind well. The Affordable Care Act is another classic example. But I digress. I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour, where we're talking about DACA and the fact that there can be no DACA fix without a correspondent improvement in border security. So, DACA will be a small fix. It's not comprehensive immigration reform. And you know what else? It cannot be an amnesty. It cannot be a get out of free out of jail free card. Okay? The Democrats are not going to be able to pass their open-ended House Dream Act. What will pass is a bill that is time-fenced. That means that if you entered the United States as a child before 2007, which is the date in the Obama uh, executive order on DACA, or 2011, the year before the executive order was issued, because remember there's been several years in between, then we've got something to talk about because one of the absolute prerequisites The Democrats need to remember is that there are more Republicans in Congress in the House of Representatives today than there are Democrats, and even those who are intending to retire have a certain amount of loyalty in terms of who will follow them, and it is axiomatic that there will be no amnesty because the 1986 amnesty of 2 million people brought us 11 million more. So that's a prerequisite from the majority point of view. It's got to be, DACA's got to be limited only to children who came as a part of a family. Between 2004 and 2006, we saw a migration of unaccompanied minors from Central America. You've heard of the gang M13, that's where it comes from, and Of those young people who entered the United States unaccompanied, they're not – you can't call them innocent. You can't say they were taken by the hand by their parent and therefore they don't own the sin of illegal immigration. So we've got to limit DACA to those who came here as part of a family. And we've got to exclude the use of DACA. When we get down to do you get to be a permanent resident, do you get to be a citizen, eventually can you earn citizenship, et cetera, even if we allow earned citizenship, we have to specify that it, that, that citizenship will not include an ability to exercise the too frequently used uh, chain migration that would then allow them to legalize their parents. Their parents are going to have to be part of a different type of solution. There will be a solution for them, but I think we've got to go step by step. And since the DACA recession was announced last Tuesday, immediately followed by Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and, Dick, and uh, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin stepping forward to talk about bipartisan legislation they had entered into the Senate hopper in July, the phrase, and I quote, border security, unquote, has followed immediately the words, we need a DACA fix. So the two things are closely related, and one cannot happen without the other. The Republican majority in both houses cannot defend passage of DACA without tying that fix directly to enhanced border security. And so Nancy Pelosi is cute by half when she steps up and says there's a deal. Because there's no deal until Paul Ryan, who supports a DACA fix with a trade-off for strong border security. There isn't going to be a bill in committee or on the floor, out of committee or on the floor of the House of Representatives until Paul Ryan brings that bill. And his majority depends on it not being an amnesty. So wall or no wall? You know, the wall is a Trump campaign promise it is not good law it's not necessary because the fact is that every year since 2007 more than half of the illegal immigrants to the United States have been airport arrival quote visa overstays unquote technology not concrete is the solution to our 360 degree land air and sea border security problem. Fixing that problem starts with with stopping talking about e-verify and making e-verify the effective law of the land. The law says that if you do not have a lawful right to work in the United States, you cannot work in the United States. So we can't make e verify anymore an optional voluntary program unless you're a federal contractor. We got to fix that one because if immigrants cannot work and support themselves, they won't come. We've got to make We've got to put teeth in E-Verify, and then we've got to enforce it. And if you want to know more about how we can do that, go to reimagineamerica.org, and you'll find some information. We've got to improve the electronic tracking of arrivals and departures of tourists and other foreign nationals with temporary, in other words, time-fenced visas. We need to use facial recognition software. We need to we take pictures of them when they enter the United States. We need to find a way to use that to make sure they exit the United States. And I wonder whether it would be constitutional or not for us to put a GPS tracker in the passport of a tourist in order to make sure that they do leave the United States when they're supposed to. We've already started using more satellite sensors and drones on the border where fencing doesn't make sense. So there isn't a need for the border wall, but what there is is there is a need to work with the states to issue technically sophisticated driver's licenses and other internal identification documents. You know when those were first mandated? In 2002, after the 9-11 incident. But but tying DACA to border security means that we need to have a direct link between the movement from provisional status to permanent residence based on measurable improvement— in our 360-degree border security. It's not enough to just pass the law. This time, we've got to link the movement from provisional status to permanent status to the effect that we have actually made an improvement in our border security. And we'll be back in just a couple of minutes to talk about Equifax.
0: For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer.
1: I don't know if it got your attention, but it sure got mine when Equifax announced that 184 million American Social Security numbers, along with their driver's license numbers, their addresses, and their credit history got stolen by hackers, we think, from Central Europe. But we're not sure about that. I have checked my social security number on the special EquifaxSecurity2017.com website, and I got a message that says my data wasn't stolen. I have zero confidence in the accuracy of that statement, even though I think it might be logical. I think that if you are – the older you are, the less valuable your social security number is going to be to a hacker who wants to sell your identity because – it has less shelf life. Can't get as much for it. But nonetheless, even though I checked twice, I've made an appointment to sign up for credit monitoring and I've frozen my credit. You can, if you don't know how to freeze your credit, you need to go to Google and find it and find out if there is some really good information. It doesn't take very long. Um you have to pay a few bucks to do it, but I think uh, given the size and the scope of this breach that it's um, the smart thing to do uh, rather than wait for somebody – then file your taxes and find out somebody's already filed for your uh, refund. But more importantly than and, – and it's very important that we individually protect ourselves. I'm not for one moment saying that we should sit back and wait for somebody else to do this for us. There has to be a really deep and probing FBI and National Security Agency investigation of what happened. This breach, as as well as the breach of the Office of Personnel Management Security Clearance database uh, of the federal government, are not just credit or identity or commercial events. They're national security issues. They risk our national security So we've got to find out who did it, how they did it, and what needs to be done both technically and legally to make sure it does not happen again. Remember, there are two other major credit bureaus who have all of the same information and don't tempt these hackers. At the same time, Congress needs to ask some really serious questions about Equifax, Experian, and their and and the other credit bureaus, and their business model, their demand that they be given vital private information that they hold and use in a private profit making business. While the Consumer Protection Bureau has been really busy over the last six or seven years, looking into bank misbehavior. They've paid no attention to what these credit monitoring services do. They haven't even noticed them. The SEC had better take some stock of this situation too because two days before the Equifax announcement that 184 million um, Social Security numbers, et cetera, had been hacked, The CEO of Equifax and a couple of other high-ranking individuals in the company sold a bunch of stock. Now, they claim they didn't know about the breach when they sold the stock, but you know what? I'm not a great believer in coincidence. So I think the SEC needs to take that one up and perhaps the Justice Department as well because it could be criminal. The FBI investigation should include a complete review of Equifax and its competitors. Technical information organizations, in other words, their IT shops, you know. It ought to be a crime to fail to apply an important Apache software open source patch. They got a patch in March. The hack took place in May and they'd made no effort to upgrade their Apache software, which is their access to the internet. How did they get away with that? Number one, it's a really bad technical practice not to do your version migrations. Number two, it's a really bad um, IT practice not to keep up uh, with, with current patches And with security notifications. And number three, there ought to be a law that forces these people to apply patches in a timely fashion when the national security is at stake. And in the longer term, Congress needs to work with the technology industry thoughtfully, but quickly to find a more secure, common personal identifier than our Social Security number. That number has been compromised in so many ways over so much time. And while we're talking about the need for congressional investigations, 23 active-duty military personnel were injured in two training exercises this week alone. I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. And let's talk for just a moment about why routine deployments and training exercises are killing so many brave American military members. Because those 23 active-duty military Marines and special operators who were injured this week in two separate incidents are in addition to 17 sailors that we lost in two tragic and inexplicable collisions with commercial ships, with much bigger commercial ships, in just the last two months. Fifteen Marines were injured, it appears six critically, when the amphibious assault vehicle they were riding in burst into flames during a training accident at Camp Pendleton. On Wednesday. And it should be noted that the same amphibious assault vehicles, the same type of vehicle, not exactly that vehicle, but the same type of vehicle, played an important role in rescuing thousands of people in Houston just weeks ago. So, how do you explain one of these vehicles on a training mission suddenly bursting into flame and 15 Marines being Critically, six of them critically injured, burned. On Thursday, just the next day, eight Special Forces members were injured in an explosion during a training exercise at Fort Bragg. So here's a question, here's a thought. How can we go into battle, God forbid? with equipment and organization that cannot withstand the stresses of standard operations or standard training exercises. How do we explain the inexplicable to the parents and spouses of these service members? Where is Congress in all of this? Why has there been no investigation? as a part of the defense authorization appropriation process. How do we explain this? We can't. I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to Reimagine America, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes to talk about one of my favorite subjects, banishing Stephen Bannon.
0: For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. ReimagineAmerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 8:60 a.m. The answer.
1: And because you know that I'm a great fan of the idea of hashtag banish Bannon, let's talk about what Steve Bannon is. Steve Bannon is an enemy of the good in search of his own perfect. Problem is that his perfect is a nightmare for the most of the rest of us. But you know what? Steve Bannon is correct that firing James Comey was a massive political mistake for Donald Trump. Bob Mueller is doggedly in pursuit of the truth behind that firing, and the activities of the campaign that made everyone so worried about what James Comey was developing within the FBI. But beyond that, Steve Bannon and his echo chamber are clearly the enemies of the good. Bannon is a self-serving egotist. No one has ever elected him to do Anything. Nobody appointed him to an office that required that anyone else consent to his presence. If the mainstream media would stop giving Bannon so much ink and airtime, he would slink back to the deep, dark hole he crawled out of in the summer of 2016. Think back. In the summer of 2016, before that, unless you were as involved in politics as I've been for most of my adult life, you wouldn't even know that Breitbart News existed. And and if you were as involved as I, you'd have known that Andrew Breitbart was not just a conservative. He was a bit of a gadfly. He liked to stir things up. But he was also the money behind the original Huffington Post. So really different in his outlook on uh, using um, uh, these more modern types of media publications to change up the conversation, not to drive it in a specific direction. But... The only thing, the only reason that we see Steve Bannon and now his little henchman, Joel Pollack, all over television is that the mainstream media is giving them so much attention. The only thing that makes anything that comes out of their mouths relevant is that the Wall Street Journal prints it and CBS News broadcasts it on respected activities like Sixty minutes. So stop. This isn't this isn't conservative media, Breitbart. It's reactionary, and ninety percent of Americans reject what it's selling. And we'll be back next week to talk about President Trump's first visit to the United Nations. What could go wrong? about global trade and about why 3% economic growth is an important measurement of our economic and national security, and about, I hope, a concept of national service that comes out of Harvey and Irma and people's willingness to step up and step out. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more, go to reimagineamerica.org. I do try to respond to as many of your comments as I can. Reimagine America is independent and nonprofit. If you appreciate our independent, results-oriented, post-political voice, please consider making a small donation at reimagineamerica.org because it's your donations that keep this show on the air. And until next Saturday, thanks for your time and your interest.
0: This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America.